Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at legalshield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts carol g juan gabriel christina aguilera what do these three have in common you mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct. But most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. KFI AM640. You're listening to the John and Ken Show on demand on the iHeartRadio app. We're live on the radio from 1 till 4 and after 4 o'clock. What did you miss, huh? If you missed something, you go to the podcast, John and Ken on demand on the iHeart app. All right. Well, the Unabomber is dead. He apparently killed himself in a federal medical type prison back east at the age of 81. Between 1978 and 1995, Someone was mailing bombs to people around the country. Uh, when they finally caught up with them, he was identified as Ted Kaczynski, the man who lived in a sparse cabin in Montana. And, of course, the motivation was allegedly his hatred of the modern world and technology. Three people were killed. Twenty-three others were wounded. He was serving eight life sentences for these bombs he died, and then we learned about a day later that it's suicide. 81 years old at first. I thought it might be natural causes because they had transferred him from a federal prison in Colorado to like a medical, federal medical facility. And I thought maybe because he was going downhill, but they're now saying well, he killed himself. He had late-stage cancer. Oh, uh, okay. Well, yeah, maybe so, that's why he killed himself. Uh, and, and he sent 
the bombs to either university professors or airline executives. Which and is, I just learned, hence the name Unabomber. That's right. For university airlines. Yeah. yeah. And we're, a, right. So we're going to talk now with... Um, Jonathan Epstein. Uh, yes, we're going to talk with Jonathan Epstein. His, his father was one of the victims. His father did survive the bombing, but it was atrocious. His father was Dr. Charles Epstein, a University of California at San Francisco geneticist. All right, let's get uh, Jonathan Epstein on. Jonathan, thanks for coming on with us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, one of the things I just read in the story about you, Jonathan, is you were hoping that that was your last interview you were going to do about this, but you agreed to come on our show. We appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you for doing that. Yeah, absolutely. That statement was a little premature, perhaps. Yeah, well, I mean, there's been interest in this for almost 30 years now, ever since the world became aware of the Unabomber, and actually his bombings go back, what, about 45 years. Um, so you've been living with this you know, a, a big percentage of your life. Did you have a particular reaction when you heard he was dead? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, I was, I initially felt glad about the news. Um, it's not great when anyone dies in, in general, but, you know, my hope was, and what prompted my statement about interviews is that we'd, pro we'd finally be able to put this chapter of our lives uh to a close it's you know it's been a while it's been 30 years my father was the age i am now when this happened yeah let's talk about that and your father of course has since passed away but he did survive this bombing what did he do at ucsf so my father was head of um, human genetics he started out his career um bringing um, healthcare out to rural areas in particular the amniocentesis procedure which was new at the time um, but he ended up developing a, a specialty in Down syndrome and really trying to understand how having an extra chromosome uh, manifested the way it did. And as part of that, uh, instituted uh, the first um, people that did genetic counseling who helped parents that uh, had or were would potentially have um, children that had um, you know, not the normal set of chromosomes and help them get through that. Uh, experience. It, it sounds like it was doing remarkable research. The Unabomber picking out your father, I mean, it puzzles you too, right? Yeah, I think, you know, he was he was mentioned in, and my father was, you know, used a lot as a source, and so he was quoted in a New York Times a story. I'm not sure what that story it was. It might have been about genetic engineering, which was something very new that he had nothing to do with this. So it, we always felt um, that, you know, since he hadn't done his homework, if he, if he was trying to stay, achieve the objectives he had you know, stated in his manifesto, he, he picked a guy that was focused on doing good with science and also bringing the benefits of science uh, and technology to, you know, the full population, not just the elite. What happened to your dad the uh, day he got this bomb? Yeah, so... Um, he was alone at home. I think uh, my sister had brought in the package and he opened it up and it blew up. The bomb was designed to maim, not kill, for which we're you know, fortunate relatively, I guess. Um, he had thick glasses on, so it probably saved his eyesight. Um, he lost fingers. He had a lot of internal injuries, essentially opened it at kind of waist level. Um, he, and we know this by tracking the 
a blood trail. He stumbled out of the kitchen, but it went the wrong way, and then went out of the front door of the house, fell down in our driveway, and the neighbors had heard the blast, and they came. And, did he have uh, Did he have long-term health problems uh, because of the blast outside of the, the missing fingers? I think, um, well, he lost um, some of his hearing. Um, he had a lot of pain from the internal injuries over time. But I do feel that over, and, you know, it took years to get his hands back in shape. But, you know, by the end of his life, I think he was, you know, other than missing some hearing and not having some fingers, which isn't great when you're a cellist, um, you know, he was able to live a full life. Uh, now, were you were you and your family aware of the unit bomber? I mean, the attack on your father happened a bit late in his bombing uh, history, 1993, and he was arrested a couple of years later. Were you were you aware of him being out there? I was not. I'd never heard of the guy before, and my father was the first in what became the new string of bombing. So it really had no historical context, had never heard of the, that name uh, until the FBI came calling to the house and include us in that this, this might be the yeah he took some time off kaczynski did from doing this as i recall and then there was a string of them later before they caught up and, and arrested him that's right did you uh, read his manifesto because that that consumed uh, the whole nation when it was published published in new york times i think and that's what led to his yeah, capture yeah he had a distinctive writing style to say the least i read some of it i have not read the the full manifesto. How did your father feel about, uh, you know, catching Kaczynski and the punishment and all that? Uh, I never really got my father's viewpoint on it. Obviously they were glad he caught him, caught because uh, they caught Kaczynski. Uh, my mother was, you know, very obviously and, and rightfully um, upset and angry about the whole thing. And she was upset that he pleaded out. She wanted him to be confronted in court by, you know, the results of his actions and felt he took the easy way out, as he may have just done so by committing suicide. Yeah, I, I, we appreciate you talking about your dad. I see here also in the story we're looking at that you don't want your father to be remembered as a Unabomber victim. You want him to be remembered for what he did to, for science. Yeah, it was always this kind of um, dual-edged sword. I, I think, you know, it was hard for him not to be identified in that way because he, he was a victim and it was a, a pretty small group of people and he was fortunate to, to survive. But my father was very, you know, one of the top geneticists in the country. He went on to be the initial scientific advisor and, and later the chairman of the board of trustees for the Buck Institute, which is a leading um, institute focused on age research or aging research and why, why getting old does what it does to us because there was a connection between Down syndrome and aging. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, he was very accomplished. He had more than 500 scientific papers to his name. And, um, you know, ultimately that and the books he wrote on medicine that we hope will be his legacy. And he, was he able to continue a lot of his work after the bombing? He did after a while, uh, after, you know, a couple of years of recuperating, he went back uh, to his lab uh, and he, he actually was able to play the cello again, you know, on a personal life yeah. basis. They made special bows for him that he could hold uh, despite his missing appendages. 
Um, but yeah, he, he went full long into research. And if anything, you know, he, when this happened, he was 59, my age, and was at a point in his career where he's you know, kind of wondering, Hey, what's this all been for when the, you know, the, the one that's silver lining, if that's even a real thing in this case of the incident was that he got thousands of letters from people whose lives he had positively impacted by his work in genetics and genetic counseling. And I think that fueled him to do, you know, another 10 years. Of yeah. Yeah. Most people time. never get that. Nothing even close to it. Uh, well, listen, thank you very much for coming on with us and uh, talking about your father and talking about uh, that terrible time. Pe- people, for having me. people shouldn't get, forget, you know, the victims in these cases. Jonathan Epstein, uh, he's the son of uh, the UC San Francisco geneticist, Dr. Charles Epstein, one of the Unabomber victims. He survived the mail bomb that exploded. Uh, Just a geneticist who was doing great work on Down syndrome, and uh, that's why uh, the, the wild, crazy guy Kaczynski sometimes didn't. Uh, I, obviously, what he was doing was wild and crazy, but even picking some of his victims just seemed really remarkably uh, weird. You know, there's uh, a there's a TV reporter quoted in a story who covered the the, the uh, court case at the time, and uh, he would look at us sitting there and nod and smile, almost like we were going to have coffee with him that day. Uh, he was just, you know, he was extremely mentally ill with this bizarre obsession. About All right, we got a little bit more uh, coming up next on Kaczynski. Uh, he was at one time uh, sort of a professor at UC Berkeley and his students. Uh, most of them didn't remember him because he didn't like to talk to people. Obviously, he hated humanity. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more coming up. Johnny Ken, KFI AM 640, live everywhere, the iHeartRadio app. You're listening to John and Ken On Demand from KFI AM 640. We're on the radio 1 till 4 after 4 o'clock. What'd you miss? Go to the iHeart app for the John and Ken podcast. And, uh, you know, one adds to the other. You do the radio show, whatever you missed, you do the podcast. All right, well, the Unabomber is dead. He apparently killed himself in a federal medical-type prison uh, back east at the age of 81. John said what, he had late-stage cancer of yeah. some kind? yeah. Ted Kaczynski came from Chicago, but he does have ties to the West Coast. He was obviously a math whiz, and uh, he got a scholarship at Harvard. At 16, he went to Harvard, and then from there, he moved to the University of Michigan for an advanced degree in math. And then in 1962, he eventually landed as an assistant math professor at UC Berkeley. He was just 25 years old and on a tenure track already now you had mentioned earlier that one of the reasons they were able to nab the unabomber ted kaczynski is because the new york times published his manifesto it was his brother david kaczynski who recognized the work of his own brother and uh basically turned him in and that's how they tracked ted kaczynski down and arrested him back then um there's a few memories that people came up with but when he was a Math professor at UC Berkeley, a lot of people could not remember him because he was antisocial. He didn't really want to relate to people or to anyone else. In fact, the guy that ran the department at the time had no recollection of Kaczynski being a professor there. He was just very withdrawn. He lived in a cottage behind a main residence in a quiet residential neighborhood and pretty much kept to himself. Uh, Even students complained he would not answer questions. 
just read out of the textbook. Imagine a professor that doesn't answer questions, and the idea is for you know students to yeah. be very inquisitive and to uh, really you ask know. you a bunch of questions you know. to further their learning. It's like I didn't want to answer questions. Now that I've had three sons go through college, you have no idea how many freaks are college professors are hmm. like like out and out weirdos, and because uh, I've seen some videos of them teaching. Right. And I've I've heard the stories, and these are a lot of maladjusted social outcasts who really could not exist in the real world, but they have their own little genius niche that they are obsessed with, and they can pontificate on. But no, that mm. that 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 whole world is scary. Uh, yeah. It really is, and Kaczynski is one of the scary ones. the The thing that was most fascinating. And I remember, I remember reading a book on Kaczynski, and 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 this popped out in the, one of the news stories this weekend. Um, when he was, uh, I guess, at Harvard, he was part of a psychological experiment run by a professor, Henry Murray. Murray was later accused of running what amounted to a cruel human experiment on young adults. His goal was to subject them to extreme stress to see how people responded to trauma. So Kaczynski mm. spent 200 hours in the experiment absorbing all this verbal abuse. The verbal abuse focused on each subject's weaknesses and triggers. And then you'd have to watch yourself being berated. And he spent 200 hours. I don't know if that had any effect on his on his behavior. Behavior, right. Gave him some kind of a breakdown. It, I, mean, it, I mean, there's a great example. Who the hell would think of that? Yeah. And, then, and then carry it out. He eventually leaves Berkeley and uh, he moves back home with his parents for a while in Illinois. But as we now know, he ended up in a cabin in Montana. And that's where they caught him in 1996. Uh, he struck California several times with bombs. In fact, they did think he had some kind of ties to UC Berkeley because there were two bombs detonated in a place called Corey Hall at Berkeley. The only location the Unabomber hit twice. And one of them was an electrical engineering professor who, in 1982, picked up an item that looked like a tool in the break room. It was a pipe bomb. He, was, he got wounded in the face with shrapnel. He did recover. And then in May of 85, a graduate student went to open a package left in the computer lab. That caused severe damage to the man's hand and arm. Uh, so between 1978 and 1995, Kaczynski targeted California four times, twice at Corey Hall and Twice in Sacramento, killing a computer store owner and a timber industry lobbyist. You can really see it was really all over the place with his targets. Yeah, a computer a... store owner? I mean, really? Not that any of this is right, but it's like the, the bizarre it, it, madness that overtook him. Yeah. Uh, he, he lived in a cabin. It was 10 feet by 14 feet. Filled Plywood with, and tar paper, right? Yeah. Filled with journals, a diary written in code, explosive ingredients, two bombs, and he hated... That people thought he was mentally ill, and he refused to let his lawyers defend him with an insanity defense. He eventually well, pleaded guilty rather than plead insanity. Because with his philosophical take on what was happening to the world, he's he, not insane. We are. Yeah. No, he thought he was right. He thought technology was, was destroying the world yep. and uh, destroying humanity. There was another story I read. He was corresponding with a man who wrote books. I don't know, they were travel books or something. But he asked a lot of questions about where can he find the most remote place. 
Mm. You know, ultimately that's what he wants. And wasn't didn't his brother also live like in a ditch for a while or he, a bunker? He lived yes uh, underground in a bunker with a storm door as his roof, and he would pop open the storm door to uh, to climb out. And he was yeah. living there at the same time that his brother is living in a cabin <clears throat> in Montana. In Montana, right? Yeah. Hey, that's score one for genetics and running in the family. Polish immigrant parents. Uh, the answer was three. Three people picked the Unabomber to die in the John and Ken 2023 group poll. Good one. People, some, about three people did remember that he was out there and he could die this year, and he did. Uh, more coming up. John and Ken, KFI AM 640, live everywhere, the iHeartRadio app. Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print, or you finally want to get that will done. Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Do you love Selena? Like, really love whether you saw her live, saw the movie as a kid, or saw her looks all over TikTok, there's no shortage of reasons to Stan, the Queen of Tejano. And Stan, we do over three whole episodes of our podcast, Becoming an Icon. We're reminiscing as lifelong Selena fans, sharing hot takes and telling her story. Listen to Becoming an Icon on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Becoming an Icon. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're talking tea, we're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Here are some examples of what you'll hear from us on Rappaport's Reality Podcast. This is where we discuss all things reality TV, all things popular culture. And a little bit of Rappaport's reality, the reality of bit. us. We're a figuring bit. out. And if we had been recording these last four or five days, Ooh. it, it would have been, Ooh, been the podcast juicy. would have taken a, a, a left turn. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny. The warmth of Fredo and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carvin and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to John and Ken On Demand from KFI AM 640.
How scary was that on Saturday with reports that there might be a coup Ugh. going on in Russia? Crazy. I was looking for John. He's still not in. I think he's in the bunker. I know he is. He's hiding. I was thinking about joining him. Oh, you because- were? I thought you didn't want to go anywhere near that bunker. Well, what if Putin goes scorched earth and just decides to unleash all the nukes everywhere? Oh, I know. It's terrifying. Because he's about to go down in this coup. It was over in a matter of hours if you really believe the entire story because, you know, information you get from that part of the world, even Ukraine, who knows what exactly to believe. But this is all about this mercenary army called Wagner Group, led by a commander. His name is Yevgeny uh, Prigozhin. And they were marching towards Moscow, and everyone believed that that the idea was to take out the government and Putin. And then hours later, we learned, no, it's over. And uh, some sort of deal was reached, and he's out of the country, Prigozhin, supposedly in Belarus, is where he's been exiled to, whether or not he lives very long. Uh, But I've heard everything from, you know, this could be the end of Putin, this could be the end of Prigozhin, or... This whole thing was orchestrated. Let's talk about all this right now with uh, our guest, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, retired from the U.S. military, a senior fellow and military expert with Defense Priorities, defensepriorities.org. Welcome to the John and Ken Show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate being here. Sure. First, explain to our listeners, what the heck is the, the Wagner Group? Well, what the Wagner Group is, is what's, it's called a professional military company. There's really no analog in the U.S. to, to relate it to. It's not like a, a, a trip, a traditional um, mercenary group because it's Russians fighting for Russia. But instead of fighting under the command of, of the Ministry of Defense, they were hired separately uh, and paid by the Ministry of Defense, equipped by the Ministry of Defense. But they conducted their operations as they saw fit. And that's actually the reason why they were have been uniformly uh, and uniquely effective on the battlefield, more so than the rest of the Russian army, because they fight differently and they're organized differently. But well, that uh, success has come at a cost, I think, because they, Prigozhin, that you just mentioned there, uh, I think uh, started thinking he was bulletproof and started kind of acting crazy towards Putin. Yeah, there were reports that he actually wants to be the next president of Russia. Have you heard that too? Uh, you know, I, I haven't heard that. They, there was some rumors that he might be interested in politics after the war, but he was sharply focused on on winning the combat and the, the conflict. And and the actions of this this uh, this I guess rebellion is probably the better word to put it uh, seem to support that because even even Prigozhin in the midst of all this and subsequently in turn fact just hours ago reiterated this was never to upset or, or unseat Putin, but it was to get a change in the Ministry of Defense from the Minister of Defense and the commander of the armed forces who he regarded as being uh, incompetent and harming Russia. So that's what he has claimed all along, and he's still saying the same thing today. Yeah, well, if it's all true, it could be an indicator that things are going really, really badly for the Russians in this attempt to take Ukraine. But he also says that maybe a factor in why they were marching towards Moscow was that he thinks that there was a Russian military strike on his uh, his his troops. Yeah, that's one of the things he claims, and there's not really a lot of evidence to support that. I, that, I think the best uh, interpretation is that he decided he was going to go after uh, the Minister of Defense, because they had set in place a plan that by July 1st, the organization was going to be defunded and disbanded. 
And unless they signed a contract directly with the government so that they would basically take Prigozhin out of the picture, instead of doing that, he's, it looks like he made that part up to get everybody fired up and then started marching uh, towards Rostov-on-Don and then uh, eventually towards Moscow. So I think that that part was uh, basically manipulated and made up, uh, and then the move was very much real. And let's talk about this concerning the Wagner Group. Uh, they're sort of like uh, plausible deniability. I mean, one of the reasons they exist, because as you said, there are a lot, it's a lot of Russians, they're all Russians pretty much. I heard some of them are former prisoners too, but this was to make it look like, well, the Russian government isn't doing this invasion in Syria or Africa. Uh, you can't blame us. Uh, it's, it's it's this Wagner group. Uh, it's a very thin veil then. I, <laughs> I, uh, most of the time, they're, they're, they're actually in coordination directly with the government, even openly. Uh, and they're they're actually operating with the Russian armed forces in Syria and in several places in Africa, even today. So that's even up in the air how that part's going to work out. Uh, but I don't know if you saw it, but but uh, just minutes ago, Putin had a speech where he said uh, that he has now allowed the Wagner fighters, which was one of the big unknowns, to either sign a contract with the Russian government or they could go into Belarus. And several of them have already been seen going in there which gives some credence to the possibility that uh, Prigozhin is going to go there and continue to operate with uh, Wagner from Belarus and put a potentially a northern threat to Ukraine. A lot of people believe, I don't know what you believe, that uh, Prigozhin's not going to be around long, that uh, Putin tends to eliminate his enemies if he is a real enemy. It, that's certainly a threat. I mean, that's happened so many times. No one can certainly... Uh, get by with that or say that's not going to happen. What we don't know and what would uh, really weigh in on whether that does or doesn't happen is what was the secret deal that was made between Lukashenko, the president of Belarus, uh, Putin and Prigozhin? Because there is some suspicion that this could have been uh, like a target of opportunity, so to speak. And he's going to say, hey, instead of fighting us, why don't you go and fight from a different front and go over there with Belarus. There's apparently going to be a big announcement by Lukashenko in the morning where we might get more visibility on exactly what Prigozhin is going to be doing there. But we know for sure by the Putin himself that many of the Wagnerites are moving into Belarus as we speak. Yeah, there's a report that there was the, the 25,000 mercenary force had about 8,000 fighters at the time that they were allegedly marching towards Moscow. I don't know if you all saw this. I'm talking to Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, retired from the military with defense priorities. Uh, if you saw this, but there's reports that uh, Russian intelligence operatives reached out to families of some of the mercenary soldiers and said, if you keep marching, your family uh, you could be in big trouble. Did you hear, see those reports? Uh, I, I did see some of those reports. I, of course, I have no way to know if it's valid or not, but it's certainly plausible. Now, what do you think about this other theory that some of this might have been staged? I guess even President Biden had to say we had nothing to do with it, but that some of this might have been staged to have people rally around Putin. That would be the Russian people thinking that, uh, you know, uh, now that he's quelled this rebellion, this was awful that someone tried to, to topple their efforts in Ukraine. You know, there's been so many crazy things going on with this. It's it's really hard to rule anything out right now, especially, you know, looking at it from this distance. But the fact that uh, seven Russian aircraft, uh, fixed wing and a rotary wing, were shot down as a result of this and several people were killed, I, I tend to think that's probably not the case because it's too, way too big of a risk to actually have armored convoys on the on the road to the capital because it looks terrible for Putin. He he comes off looking much weakened to this because this Prigozhin issue has been going on since February, 
and exploded uh, again in May, and Putin took no action. Is he didn't he didn't take care of his Minister of Defense. He didn't do anything to change the dynamics. He didn't punish Prigozhin. So he's coming off looking like, hey, who's in charge here? Uh, so there's some questions about his leadership here, and a lot's going to depend on what happens next as to whether that's just a temporary problem or whether it festers into something more later. Yeah, I mean, do you believe this is the beginning and the end of Putin? Uh, so far, no. Uh, so far, this is just an embarrassment uh, and, and a, you know, a red or an orange flag, I'll say, a yellow flag. Uh, but it depends on what happens next. If if Putin is not able to get control of the situation, especially with Wagner, uh, and, and if Prigozhin continues to be a thorn in his side and it, it looks like he can't control him, and most importantly, if Putin is not able to go on an offensive this summer and significantly move the, the front line to the West, then I think that this, this chink that's been in the armor can expand. But if he succeeds in that, and if he gets control of Wagner, he could end up being strengthened, actually. So we have to wait. It's impossible to say which way it'll go right now. But this just seems to point out just how well things are going for Ukraine if we have some sort of revolt by the big mercenary army leader against the Russian government because he is angry with the Russian defense officials. It tells you that things are really screwed up from the Russian side of this. Well, it, it says that, that things are dysfunctional on the Russian side, that's for sure. But uh, it doesn't go so far as to say things are going good for the Ukraine side, because on the battlefield, even against the regular Russian forces, things are going really bad and have been uh, for the last three weeks of this offensive. They just today seem to have gained uh, another another uh, settlement in kind of the center of the Zaporizhia area, which is helpful to the other side. But they should have probably captured that within the first 72 hours if the offense was going to have a good chance of success. They have lost so many men and, and so many of these Western tanks and Bradley fighting vehicles that we gave them uh, just to get these you know, basically seven or eight kilometers. Uh, they don't have enough striking power to get all the way down to the Azov coast, which was the original guess, uh, the intent. So right now they're kind of, their Ukraine side's kind of in trouble because they don't have enough power to keep going for this and to achieve anything meaningful on the battlefield so it's uncertain where even that's going all right thank you so much for talking to me lieutenant colonel daniel davis u.s military retired senior fellow and military expert with defense priorities i appreciate you coming on you bet thanks for having me all right defense priorities defensepriorities.org more coming up on the john and ken show at kfi am 640 live everywhere the iheart radio app you're listening to john and ken on demand from kfi am 640 We're on the air from 1 until 4 after 4 o'clock, the iHeart app for the Johnny Can On Demand podcast. You know, it, it seems like the experiment is coming to an end. That uh, all the progressive ideas on this tolerance, matter, yeah. Well, because we, we they had their way for the last six years. We did it the way of the progressives, and it produced everything disgusting. Well, it's a complete failure. It's disgusting, and everybody's tired of it. And I'm glad you said that, because we have an update on one of these great plans to house the homeless, which is turning into rubble. Oh, yes. That's the Skid Row Housing Trust. This is a group of 29 properties, and the actual organization is called Skid Row Housing Trust. It is what you think it is. This is to permanently house the homeless. They are having severe financial problems. Some poor guy by the name of Mark Adams was uh, assigned to be the receiver. 
He's in charge of the properties, and he's the one that kind of steps in because it's it's a bankrupt situation, and he tries to figure out how to keep things going. He's asking for emergency action from an L.A. County Superior Court judge because they can't borrow any more money, and they have almost $2 million in unpaid bills. Lenders are just not worth willing to give them any money. They don't believe that and there's a chance that they'll get any of it back. The reason this trust is, is going bankrupt is they couldn't keep up with the repairs needed because the crazy, drug-addicted homeless people kept destroying the units they were put in. As fast as they were put into shelter, that's how fast these lunatics were, were, were wrecking the place. Oh, and did you see the story in the L.A. Times by Liam Dillon and Doug Smith? Yes. It blames the people that were running the trust for cutting back on maintenance and security for the reason that they're in such a shambles condition. How about no, that? No, no, How's that like a backhand swipe? It's, it's the, no, it's the people who live there, as John said, that have destroyed it. The vagrants destroyed it, and, and, and that's why they have no money to keep it running. Yeah, I, remember, I, they are tolerant there, so gangs have taken over this place. Here, here Here's what um, Mark Adams said. Look, the costs are swamping initial estimates. He had to revise his projections, and um, roof repairs at one property, Rainbow Apartments, uh, are needed. The other Three units at the complex were destroyed, necessitating more work than anticipated. He had to spend an average of $3,000 a unit to fix 400 units because of all the all the damage that that uh, that occurred inside. Now, this, you know, anybody who's who's had apartments or had any kind of properties. You generally don't run into too many destruction costs, right? And when you run into destruction costs, you often find out that, you know, it's drug addicts who are in there. You have a security deposit to get you some of it back, too. Right, yeah. I mean, there's there, yeah, there's normal stuff that the security deposit covers. But you ha when you have destruction, that comes from violent, out-of-control behavior that is often fueled by drugs and booze. Because most people don't destroy their own home, especially when they've been giving, given a new home for free. But what point this makes that's very, very pertinent. This is the problem with the housing first thing. Oh, we got it like Newsom said yesterday or that tape we played. The, the, the cure for homelessness is housing. No, because these people are no condition to be into housing because there's no requirement that they get treatment. And apparently there's not enough requirements that they keep the drug selling gangs out of here. The place is overrun yeah. with people who have all sorts of mental and, and, and addictive dysfunctions and gangs. And, and that's what the problem is with housing first. It solves nothing but destroying the place. And none of the politicians and most of the media never talk about that. That when you let drug addicts into one of these, these housing situations, what follows is large gangs of drug sellers. Oh, because they got all, a, that's their audience. Right. right. And they, they, all the addicts take the drugs. None of them are getting treatment. Well, if you have, uh, you know, a building with, with dozens or hundreds of drug addicts in it, mental patients, what do you think is going to happen? I, I mean, this is such a stupid, ridiculous system. Completely discredits this. Completely. All the, that's what I'm saying. These progressive experiments are a total failure. They create nothing but a sewer, nothing but destruction. 
Adams told the Times that as of yesterday, they had a, 336 bucks left in the bank account, nearly $2 million in outstanding obligations. Yeah, it's bankrupt. So they're in a crisis situation. Head, he can't get any money. Uh, nobody wants to lend him money. Nobody does, and, because and, that's a bad risk. In fact, the last loan he was able to squeeze out, 15% interest. 15%. They still have 1,500 people allegedly living in these 29 properties. Yeah, and were, you know what? They're all going to get evicted, and uh, then they'll have another 1,500 people on the street. And that, that will have been government-created homelessness because of stupid, failed, progressive ideas. All right, I got more coming up. John and Ken, KFI AM 640, live everywhere, iHeartRadio app. Hey, you've been listening to The John and Ken Show. You can always hear us live on KFI AM 640, 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. every Monday through Friday, and, of course, anytime on demand on the iHeartRadio app. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Carol G. Juan Gabriel. Christina Aguilera. What do these three have in common? You mean apart from impeccable style, chart-topping canciones, and drama? Facts, yes, all of the above are correct, but most importantly, they're some of the biggest Latin icons in the world. And they're just a few of the game-changing Latin stars we're covering in Becoming an Icon Season 2. Listen to Becoming an Icon on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality, Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's Reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.